All righty then. Um, the book of First John. And last week, if you were here, I think you got um, a flyer in the bulletin that laid out, I think, the first six weeks maybe of this series. We're going to give that to you in, in bite sizes. It's, it's an 18-week series. That's about how long it, it takes to go through this letter. And some of you might be saying, well, why First John? Um, just briefly, because First John, in my view, does the best job of any of the New Testament documents of connecting us with this destiny that we've been talking about, which is to know that we're loved and to love others and to live this out with courage, which will literally bring the righteousness of God to the planet, into the evil and the mess. I think this letter does the best job of doing that. So having said that, let me give you first, before we look at this prologue, the first four verses, let me give you just a few words of introduction so that we have a context for what these five chapters are going to be about in terms of, of the history of, of when this letter was written and delivered. So first of all, let's talk for a minute about the author. Who is the guy? Who is the person who wrote this letter? And if you know anything about 1 John, you know that um, there's not a name mentioned in the text. But probably, uh, this was at least, we at least believe we know this, that this was an apostle who wrote this letter. And one of the reasons we believe it was an apostle, and you, you'll see this in just a moment as we looked at the first four verses, this brother was an eyewitness. I've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. There's even an implication here that they not only saw and heard and touched Jesus when he was on the planet before he died, but on the planet after he died and was resurrected because they're calling him the life, eternal life. And so there's a sense here that whoever wrote this letter was mesmerized by this one named Jesus of Nazareth to the point that he, is caught, he said, I've seen him and I'm telling you, this was no normal person. This is the one that we're going to call eternal life. This is God's messenger of eternal life. In fact, he embodies eternal life to us, those who have, us who have been living in death and darkness. And so the only people uh, who could write like that were called apostles. The apostles were those who had seen Jesus and also had seen and been with the resurrected Christ. So we believe he's an apostle. Also, if you go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, look at this little verse. Uh, that this author speaks to his readers. He goes, look, we are of God, and he who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That is a very arrogant statement. I would never say that to you. Hey, if you know me, you know God, and if you hear me, I'm going to tell you exactly what God says. I wouldn't say that. i say I'm going to do the best job I can but this brother was saying, if you, if you hear me, you have heard exactly what you need to hear from God. That is an apostolic statement. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be so arrogant as to say that unless you had actually been with this one that he was writing about. And we're convinced that he had delivered that message to him specifically as one of the apostles to give to the rest of the world. So we believe he's an apostle. We also believe, historically, most, most scholars believe that this is the apostle known as John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve. Remember, John was uh, a brother of a guy named James, James, and together they were called the sons of Zebedee. They were also called the sons of thunder. And there's all kinds of speculation about what that means, but in my most thunderous moments, I feel a little bit at home knowing that at least there were some folks that had the nickname sons of thunder, and they were apostles of Jesus. It's almost unanimous in the ancient tradition that John, the son of Zebedee, wrote this book, um, Plus, it seems certain that John, the son of Zebedee, wrote the Gospel of John for reasons I won't get into. And the text of 1 John is so similar to the Gospel of John that if John, the apostle, the son of Zebedee, wrote the Gospel of John, it's almost certain because the language is just too similar. The concepts are too similar that this apostle that wrote 1 John was probably the same author. Okay? So that's what I've got for you in terms of authorship. B, destination and readers. Uh, where was this letter going to? Who was this letter going to? First of all, know this, and if you compare this letter with some of the letters of Paul, you'll know this already. This is not a traditional letter. The style of this letter is more like a speech, an ancient speech or an ancient sermon that was intended to be read than a typical letter. You know, in Paul's letters, he says, you know, to the church at Corinth. 
And then at the end, he greets specific people in that church at Corinth and says basically goodbye, grace and peace to you, much like a letter you and I might write to someone. It's very personal. This letter doesn't have any of those personal notations. So though it's classified as a letter in terms of ancient documents, it was more like a speech or a sermon that was intended to be delivered to a group of churches and then taken around to those churches and read like it was a sermon or a teaching. You know, today you just podcast something. Back then, they had to write something on a piece of papyrus, roll it up, send it with a courier to get to a place, you know, holding it safe, keeping it safe from water and damage, and then taking it to those churches, delivering it to one of the leaders who would sacred hold that piece from one of the apostles with, with sacred hands, read it to that congregation, then send another courier to another church, read it to that congregation. Maybe they would barter and say, can we keep it for two weeks instead of one? This is from John. This is one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. This is our one who was with our Savior. Can we keep it for two weeks? And then they'd take it to the next uh, group and then to the next group. That's probably the character of, of this letter. And then, uh, what was the destination? What was the readership? Well, we think maybe that this, le- this letter was written to the ancient churches of Asia Minor. In fact, some people believe that this letter was written, was, isn't stated, but they believe it was written to the seven churches of Revelation. In fact, if you put that map up there, my brother, you can see here uh, the Aegean Sea, and you can see these churches right here. These are the churches of Revelation, which, by the way, many scholars believe was also written by the same author that wrote 1 John and that wrote John's Gospel. And in fact, you can see right here is Ephesus, where John apparently, we think, may have started his ministry and also where he ended his ministry. So you've got the seven churches of Revelation, you have Ephesus right here. Um, why, why do we think that this may be the destination? Well, a couple of um, church fathers like Irenaeus in the late 2nd century, who was a student of Polycarp, who knew John personally. So there's a connection there. You see, there's no disconnect. Uh, Irenaeus knew Polycarp, who knew John, who we think wrote this. Um, he says, as well as Eusebius, who's the first church historian who wrote in the 3rd century, they both place John's ministry to Jewish believers in Asia Minor. So what some people think is, is that when the apostles were scattered, and the last time you see John is in Acts chapter 8, and after that you don't read about him anymore. Some people think that after Acts 8, John went to Asia Minor, went to these churches in Asia Minor. Some people think that he spread the gospel there and literally planted those seven churches, which would make sense, wouldn't it, when in Revelation... Two, the first, two, two of the first three chapters he writes in the book of Revelation are to the seven churches. May have been the churches that he literally planted, and so he felt very, very close to them and, and wanted to get his arms around them, even in the last book that he wrote. So some people think that he went there early, shared the gospel, wrote the gospel of John there, maybe in the late 40s, early 50s, came back to Jerusalem and then wrote letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, back to the churches in Asia Asia Minor, these seven churches, from Jerusalem because there had been some time that had passed and there was some false teaching that had uh, kind of risen up and and he was trying to shepherd them again from, from a distance. In fact, some people think, some scholars think, this is very interesting, just a conjecture, but it's interesting, that when Paul was trying to go Back to Asia Minor in Acts 16. And remember when it says the Holy Spirit forbid him from going there. In fact, he got a vision that said he he needed to come over into Macedonia. Some scholars think, and you have to read between the lines, we're trying to piece together history here, that the reason that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul from going to Asia Minor is because John was already there. And there was no one. Uh, where the Macedonian was calling. And so the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to send you where there no, no one is because John's already got my business taken care of in Asia Minor. Now, secondly, this letter, some people think, may have been sent, though it was sent to all the churches, all the people in the churches, maybe primarily to the leaders in the Asian churches. And you'll see as we go through this letter uh, in the next 18 weeks, um, it, there, there's just a tone to the letter that is especially cautioning the early believers about false teachers. 
and it seems to be especially cautioning a certain group amongst the readership or, or the listening audience to be careful that they protect the others from the false teachers. So he may have especially had in mind the leaders in these seven ancient churches because of their need to shepherd the flock that was getting kind of taken away from fellowship with Jesus by this false teaching. Date, um, we don't really know uh, when these letters were written, but one date in the ancient world in terms of Jewish Christianity always stands out, and that is 70 A.D. In fact, the Jewish wars between 66 and 70, where Titus and the Romans, you know, the, the Jews had finally got to the point where they had courage to rebel. One of, their, one of their rebellions, one of their main rebellions, and the Romans came in and crushed that rebellion in a war that lasted between 66 and 70, which culminated, of course, in the destruction of the temple. Titus came in, ransacked Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple, and Judaism, as it was known for hundreds and hundreds of years, was never the same again. When a document doesn't mention those Jewish wars, a Jewish document, John was a Jew writing to early Jewish believers, when a document doesn't even mention those wars, doesn't mention the destruction of the temple, very likely scholars believe that this letter had to be written before 66 AD when those wars started. And so if the Gospel of John, again, just surmising, was written late 40s, early 50s, and there was some time that passed, for false teaching to develop, and John got a chance to go back from uh, those seven churches to Jerusalem, hear word that they were kind of falling away from the true faith and had a chance to write a letter back, we may be looking at a date of approximately 60 to 65 A.D., which would account for all the details that we see in this letter and, and what we sense and surmise about the history behind it, okay? Finally, any questions so far? This seem clear enough? Just trying to give you a setting that this is a historical document, trying to give you a, a, a picture of what the setting was that this document was written in. Fourthly, uh, setting and purpose. This, doc, this letter is incredibly pastoral. You see the phrase little children seven times in this letter. Again, it was probably circular. And uh, you've got two or three uh, you've got one main purpose and two or three adjunct purposes for this letter. First phrase that we'll look at in just mo a moment in more detail, chapter 1, verse 3. I'm writing that you may have fellowship with us and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, because that's who our fellowship is with. The main purpose of this letter, as we'll talk about more in a moment, is that the brothers and sisters in those seven churches, or whatever churches this letter was being written to, would be invited into an intimate fellowship with the early apostles, and their fellowship was with the Father and with the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the purpose of this letter, and I'm going to mention that, I'm going to talk about this more in a moment, but it's incredible to me. John, as an apostle, could have been writing for any reason on the planet. Think of all the things that draw our attention in Christianity. Um, think of all the books that have been written. You go to a Christian bookstore, all the topics all the titles, all the issues of all that John could have been writing about to these early church believers. He said, look, the main thing that I'm writing to you about is that you would be pulled into this relational fellowship that we have with a God who calls himself your father and with his son, Jesus the Christ. The main purpose of this letter is relational because the life is always. Have we not been saying this for the last seven months? The life is always in the relationship, and here it is once again. Now, this leads to a secondary purpose or a problem, which is why they, they were writing about this relationship or this fellowship, and that is chapter 2, verse 26. I've quoted you the phrase, I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. There were some teachers who came out from Jerusalem, apparently, who used to be a part of the apostolic circle, but then, and isn't this the way it goes in life and in history? You've got a group, you're together, you, you believe the same stuff, and then all of a sudden somebody goes, you know what? I don't think that guy's telling it right. I don't think that lady's telling it right. So I think I'm going to go over here and start my own group. And so John says, they went out from us because they were not really of us. 
And so they went out teaching kind of a skewed doctrine about who Jesus was and what he really came to do, which he's saying that skewed truth, that that false teaching about Jesus was destroying the intimacy that these believers had a potential to have with, with the Father and with his Son. And the reason that's so important is because if the intimacy is destroyed, then you've got nothing. And so he's saying, we've got to stop this false teaching that these false teachers are given to our brothers and sisters so we can pull them back into intimate fellowship that is based upon the truth that we know about Jesus, not about lies. And then thirdly, if you drop to chapter 2, verse 28, in the theme section of the book that starts with verse 28 in chapter 2 and kind of encapsulates in chapter 4, verse 17, look at this theme. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears... And by the way, the, the word abide is simply a fellowship term. If I am abiding with my friend Dan, it means I'm hanging out with him. It means I'm dwelling with him. It means to live with. It means to be with, to hang with, to be a part of. And it's the abiding that is the kind of the action word of the concept of fellowship. And so he's saying, if you want to have fellowship with Christ, you have to hang out with him. You have to abide with him, the true Christ, not the Christ that's being teached by the, taught by the false teachers. You have to hang out with him. And then he says, this abiding will give you confidence and not shame before him at his coming. He was anticipating, there's an eschatological piece here. He's saying, one day this Christ that we're called to intimacy with is going to come back. And you as his children will be standing there. And he's going to say, now you're mine. Don't be nervous. You're mine. But this is the end of time. And I want to ask you, so how did it go? When I left you behind to give my life to the planet that was dying, how did it go, Pete? How did it go, Pete? <laughs> I'm sure he won't say it like that. How did it go? And he's saying, look, what you don't want to do is to be there saying, well, you know, I trusted Christ when I was 12. And then I just kind of meandered through life, bouncing from this congregation to this little group over here. And then I went over here and read the Bible for a minute. And then I did the Bible through a year. But, but did, did you have fellowship with my people? Did you express my life to a disconnected and broken down world? Well, no, you see, I didn't do that because... John says, at that moment when we realize, my God, that's what it was all about. And no wonder I struggled with my addiction because I wasn't... You told me, didn't you? It was about the fellowship. And no wonder I, I couldn't hang with my wife because I wasn't in the community. And no wonder I didn't know how to parent my kids because I didn't have any... You told me... And, and that moment, John says, will be a moment when many of us will go, my Lord, my Lord, he gave his life for me and I squandered my life. And by his grace, I'll be in eternity with him, but there'll be a moment when we will experience, well, he uses the word shame, that we had a life to live and he called us to live it in community because that's where the life is, that's where the life will be expressed. And we decided to do our own thing. Now, if you look at the verse 17, this is the capstone of that part of the a book. He says, love has been perfected among us in this, because love is a main part of the abiding fellowship we have with Christ, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Do you see, do you see the theme? Do you see the connection? It's called an inclusio in terms of, lit, in terms of a literary term. He's saying these middle verses between uh, 2.28 and 4.17 are all going to be about how we can abide in Christ so that we can live out the mandate to have intimate fellowship as brothers and sisters so that as he is, we can be to the world, which is exactly what we've been talking about, living out our destiny with courage so that we can bring his righteousness, which is always relational to a world that is broken in half and bleeding While we 
go on our little personal evangelistic campaigns. And God bless you. I, I applaud boldness in sharing Christ personally. I applaud that. But can I tell you, I'm just saying, that was never, listen, listen, that was never the main strategy. The main strategy is that we would have fellowship with the apostles through their teaching and their ambiance with us, even down through 2,000 years through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we would have fellowship with one another and thus have fellowship with the Father and the Son and that that love would spread in a community way out across a world that needs more than just some lone ranger evangelists. There is a gift of evangelism, but that's one of the gifts. The main plan is that as he is, so we are in the world. And thus, when he comes back and he says, so Dan, man, how did it go? Well, Father, I, I hung out with the brothers and sisters, and I'm not sure I did anything magnanimous, but I, I followed your son, and I confessed sin in the community, and I studied the word in the community, and I washed feet in the community, and I was admonished in the community, and I was encouraged in the community, and we, we had a sweet fellowship, Father. I don't know if I really accomplished much, but we, we had fellowship, Father. We had this intimate thing that you called us to, and he would look at Dan and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, so that we might have boldness and not be afraid at his coming. Does that make sense? That's, that's 1 John. That's 1 John. Now, if you've got 15 more minutes in you, do you? Can you hang here? Okay. If not, you might not notice this, but, but there's a little switch that I switch when I, when I get up. You can't get up, man. See, Sophia, you can't get up, Sophia. You can't. You can't. I'm just teasing. I'm just, te- I'm just teasing you. I, I'm just teasing you. It's a total joke, but I'm not sure she took it that way. Oh, boy. All right, here we go. It's all a part of the fellowship, all a part of the fellowship. In these first four verses, which are simply a theological prologue, but they have meaning. And we're so quick, aren't we, to just kind of skip over verses until we get to something that kind of just jumps out and grabs our little hot button of the day. I'm not shaming, I'm just saying. Isn't that the truth? But these words, if they were written, inspired by God, they all have meaning. So these four verses basically say four things. The first one is this. We want you to know that we are writing to you about this one named Jesus, who is life. Middle of... Verse 1, we're writing about the one, we're writing about concerning this one that's called the word of life. In fact, he's called life eternal, which for the Jews, they believed there were two ages. This age, which was full of mess, and the age to come, eternal life, the eternal age, which was the age where Messiah would come and bring the life into the death that started way back at the fall. And he says, look, you've you got to feel this, man. You've got to feel this. John was living in these 400 years between the last word of the last prophet, Malachi. And he'd lived through all of that oppressive Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificing a pig on the altar I think it was in the second century, the martyrdom of the Maccabees, who were the folks who were the kind of the forefathers of the Pharisees who were trying to hold on to Torah amidst all the pagan influx. And they hadn't heard from God for 400 years. And now the Romans, after the Greeks had come in, and the Roman, you've heard me talk about this, it was oppressive. It was every day a Jewish person in Israel would get up and just feel the yoke of Rome on its neck. And yet the people had the words of the prophet, someday I will come and deliver you. 
and John had been living with that passionate desire. And then one day this man came by and said, you, I want you to leave your boat behind because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then this John had hung out with that one for three years and then he had watched him die and felt despair but then he came back to life and so when he writes he says I gotta tell you I am talking about the one who is life and this is where I just felt I think it was the Holy Spirit one doesn't always know but it felt like something he would say Kevin this is the problem for many of your brothers and sisters, and sometimes, son, it's your problem. You treat Jesus almost as if he's like, I don't know, like a little shelf God. Are you religious? Yeah. Which one of the gods do you want? Oh, Jesus is the one I like. And when I get into some, some hot water, I like to go to Jesus because he's, he's, he's the one for me. In the ancient world, Baals, well, you know, there are many Baals. You could even worship Yahweh and have some Baals. You could be syncretistic in that way. God wasn't having any of it, but I'm saying people did it. He says, here's the problem, son. This is why folks struggle. is because they don't know that my son Jesus was not just a good teacher. He, he wasn't just a prophet. He was life. He is everything that is not about death. He is everything that overcomes death. He's everything that overcomes division and shame and wound and pain. Jesus is life. I'm telling you about, I'm writing you about the one who's life. And so honestly, honestly this morning, look, I, I'm with you. You know I'm with you. I don't, I don't preach up there like I'm, I'm with you. But what's life to you today? Because if you're struggling to follow Jesus, it might be because you're like, you know, I like you, but life for me is here. Life is in my children. Now, you need to attend to your children, but they can't give you life. In fact, you know what the, the, the proper um, strategy is supposed to be? You get life from the one who is life and give that life to your children. If you try to make your children your life, you will suck the life out of them. Got an election coming up? Hey, man, if you're called to be a, I don't know, Republican, Democrat, if you're called to, I, my dad was a state senator. He felt a calling on his life. I'm all down with that. But can I tell you, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, they cannot give us life. They can't give us life. They can't give us life. I could go on. I think you get the point. You, you think I'm standing here today because I'm like, I like to give historical lectures about this one named Jesus the Christ. You know, he's a really interesting. Are you kidding me? I would be dead without him. And you think, that's, that's quite a metaphor, Pastor. No, more this week than ever before, I'm telling you, I would be dead. Well, he is life to me. He's life to me. And honestly, I think I had to get almost dead before I reached out to him to give me life. For a lot of years, I think I was like, man, this guy preaches. And the more tapes they sold of me preaching, this guy who preached I thought, well, this must be where it is. But that wasn't life. He's life, you see. And so when you get to the end of yourself and you say, no life here, no life here, no life here, no life here, no life here. Finally, one day we go, you despair of life. You despair of life. And you say, there is no life. And that's when he's able to speak and say, no, I am the life. I love you. I love you. Look at these nail-scarred hands. I love you. I came in history to show you what it was like to be loved and to have this intimate fellowship with the God of the universe through me. And there's life in that fellowship. There's life in that love. There's life in that forgiveness. He's life. He's like, you have no fear of death with me because I'm life. And I trump death because I'm the life. John said, I've come to write you 
about the one who has life, the one who is life. And then John says, He's no mirage, I'm just telling you. He's real. We have heard him. We've seen him with our eyes. We have handled him with our hands. We have gazed upon him. Listen, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was all kinds of mythology about the gods, all kinds of stories that were just myth but they had become so much a part of the ethos of the ancient culture that those ghost stories, those mythological, mythological stories, were almost like they were real. So when John writes, he is careful speaking into this Greco-Roman world of mythology about the gods. He's careful to say, look, can I just give you a caveat? <laughs> I'm not talking about something that my granddaddy told me about that is about some story that, you know, Homer or Plato wrote about back in the what He goes, no, I'm telling you, I'm talking about somebody I touched. I touched him. By the way, you get in the feeling that if you sit in the front row, look out because here I come, all right? <laughs> this feels better, though, doesn't it, then? Pete, Pete, this feels a lot better, yeah. He's saying, man, I touched him. I handled him. I talked with him. This was no ghost. This was no mirage. This is this guy who is life, who came back from the dead. He's real. Man, I ate fish with this guy after he came back from the dead. I especially like the term. I gazed upon him. He says, I saw him. But then he, he goes further, and he uses a term that means, I looked, and I had to look again. I remember when I went to London for the first time and I stood in a line to see the crown jewels. Have any, have any of you been in that line to see the crown jewels? You know what I'm talking about. It's like you're, you're, getting, you're anticipating. There's the crown jewels, the, the wealth symbolically and otherwise of the empire. And you're getting by and you just want to you just want to stop, but there's somebody going like this to you as you go, and there's a bobby standing there with a stick going, move on, move along, move along. <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> I say. Anyway, you just, I went to the gift shop and bought a book so I could take it home and gaze upon them even in picture form because that's how precious they were. Have any of you been to the Rocky Mountains? I'm sure many of you have. Do you remember the first time that you came up and then you went, whoa. Honestly, I, when I go back, I like to sit there and just go up to a place where you can just park your car and just gaze. Because there's something so majestic, so beautiful, so powerful that it captures your heart. You just can't glance and go on. You have to stop and gaze. I remember when our, our babies were born. My Lord. That Andrea and Leanne and Caroline, if you're listening to this podcast, honey, I, you guys are beautiful too. I'm just saying. Andrew was the first, so I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> Yeah, I'll hear about this next week, text messaging. There'll be something going on. But I'm just saying, when I, when I saw that baby girl, when I saw Andrea, I probably have told you this before, but you know how they, they've got the people standing right outside the rooms uh, where, the people are, where the children are delivered, and they, they have these racks. To, and they milk these young fathers coming out, and they're like, wouldn't you like this package of pictures? You would, wouldn't you, of this beautiful child? And I'm telling you, I'm a smart guy, have a master's degree. I, I get it. I bought everything. I bought all of it. And I walked around, and I remember doing this. I remember I had this little keychain that had her picture on it, and I, I would go up to people and say, I know that everybody says this, but honestly, take a look at this child. This is the most beautiful baby that ever was. <laughs> and I was absolutely serious. I just couldn't stop looking at her. 
I still can't. John said, when I was around him, I just had to gaze at him because there was something fairest, Lord Jesus. There was something about his beauty that I just couldn't get enough. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I I think when he invites us into this fellowship that we alluded to a minute ago, he's inviting us into the kind of relationship where we don't just see him in our spirit, but we gaze upon him and long to be with him because he communicates to us through his word, through his people, through the spirit that can do things in our experiences that are beyond our understanding. When we're like this, when we're like this saying, show us Jesus, He communicates him to us in a way that it makes us just want to gaze. John said, make no mistake, I'm not talking to you about a ghost. I'm talking to you about one that I touched, that I talked with. He hugged me. He kissed me. He slobbered all over me. He cried with me. I felt his salty tears on my cheek. That's the one that I'm telling you is life. You and I have to choose today whether we believe the apostles' testimony or not. But can I just say that sometimes it feels to me like we respond more like the Greco-Roman world saying, this is just another one of the mythological stories. It's the best one. That's why I come to church. But really, was he all that real? I can tell you this. Here's what I can tell you. He's real to me. And he was real to John. I can tell you that. And then number three. He says, I got to tell you, listen only to what we tell you about Jesus. And there's just something in the, in the prologue. It's called the apostolic we. Fourteen times, you can count them. It says, we, our, us. He was basically saying, he was getting the folks ready to contrast what they were saying as apostles with what these false teachings in chapter 2, these false teachers were going to say. And he's basically saying, We're the ones that touched him. We're the ones that hurt him. He manifested, look in verse 2, it says, he manifested himself to us. It means he came specifically and said, you 12, I'm picking you to tell the rest of the world who I really am. And by you telling them who I am, they will know who the Father is. Interestingly enough, if you go back to chapter 4, Look at verse 9. You see this little word manifest again that you see up in verse 2. This life which was manifested to us, we declare to you. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if we so love God, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Look at verse 12. But don't you see, no one really has seen him at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. In other words, he's saying he has been manifested to us We are supposed to manifest him to you, and you, by listening to what we, the apostles, say about him who is life, are supposed to go out and live him and manifest him in a mature, perfected way in the world. And he's saying, the reason you've got to keep your eyes on us is because the enemy has already, within the first 25 years of the resurrection of Jesus, he sent some false teachers to screw the whole process up. The other day I heard somebody say this, and I almost raised my hand and interrupted them, but I thought, no, 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 no. No, zip it. Just let it be. Con- you know, just, just take it in. The person said, you know what? The only really important thing is that we're all about Jesus. Now, I believe that, but let me give this caveat. This is John's caveat. Which Jesus are you about? Do you think the enemy is is so stupid 
that he's going to go, you know, he's going to create some kind of ghoulish something over here. He may, he may at some points, and he probably has in some ways, created what I would call some rather, I want to be respectful, but rather, in my view, grisly religious manifestations in the world. But I think his more subtle angel of light kind of strategy is for him just to morph Jesus just a little so that he's not the real Jesus that the apostles declared to us was manifest to them. When my kids were growing up, they had Barbie dolls. I probably used this illustration a million times. So sorry, I can't remember what I say to who. Um, And depending on the mood of the girls, I'd go downstairs when they were playing with their friends or playing with one another, and they'd have all these Barbies. You know, if one of the girls was in a mountain move, she'd have backpacking Barbie, all dressed up with the backpacks and a horse. The other daughter might have been saying, you know, I want to go to the beach, and so she'd have Malibu Barbie, and she'd have the car. And uh, I, honestly, I probably could have remodeled this building with all the money we put into Barbies, I'm telling you, when my kids were little. Well spent. Well spent. I mean, I, I loved seeing them play, and it was well spent. But, um, and then somebody else might have said, I want to go downhill skiing. And so they'd have the skiing outfit on Barbie. And it occurred to me one day, that's exactly what we tend to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Depending on my mood, I dress him up in the clothes of the day. Or I'm attracted to the group that dresses him up in, I don't know, the theology of the moment. And John is going to be really clear. He's going to say, look, first of all, Jesus came in the flesh. There was an early movement back in the second century, a guy named Serenthus that we'll talk about, who basically said Jesus was, you know, he he wasn't really a man. He was more God, kind of looked like a man, which means, by the way, theologically, that if he wasn't a man who died for us, a true man, then the atonement, the sacrifice for our sins means nothing. Now, at first glance, Serenthus is teaching like, well, you mean like if I touched him, I, could, I couldn't touch him, my hands would go right through him? Yeah, it's not that big of a deal. No, it's a big a deal. It's a big enough of a deal because God sent a man to die for men, a human to die for humans. If he wasn't fully human, the atonement is lost. And John's saying if the atonement's lost, then what do we have, man? We just have another guru whose teachings we're trying to follow, which means there's no real intimacy, there's no real fellowship, there's no real healing, there's no real forgiveness, there's no deliverance, there's no life. And I'm only saying this to say this, that when we get together each week, really what we're trying to do in community, because I don't have all the answers, we're trying to each week take this word and the testimony of the apostles and strip down off of Jesus whatever we have allowed to be put on him that week or whatever cult or whatever group or whatever online whatever got to us or the person at work who handed us a little leaflet, we're trying to strip back and say, let's compare it all with what the apostles said so that we can continue to have fellowship with the real Jesus in whose fellowship there is real life. So John thirdly says, you listen to what we say. The other folks have to cycle their stuff through us. Number four, lastly, he says, our goal is this, that you might have fellowship with the Father, which we've already talked quite a bit about this morning, and with his son Jesus in us. A couple things about this really, really, really get to me. In fact, can I just pause for a minute? One of the things that I learned this week that I did not really know, and I think some of this has just been borne out in research of the last 20 or 30 years, and we're talking neurobiological research. We're not talking just research into the New Testament documents or whatever. We're talking a guy like uh, Alan Shore, who I quote in the blog, who is uh, a neurobiologist who's done some extensive work on the brain. He works at UCLA in the Department of Psychiatry and Medicine. Don't think the guy's a Christian. He's just studying. He might be, might be, but he's just studying the brain. You know what we found out? When I say we, I'm talking about the human community has found out that 
Well, let me quote you a statistic. Did you know that in your body, get this, there are 100 billion, now stay with me, 100 billion, your, your brain's already starting to explode, but just stay with me, all right? 100 billion neurons. I'm a bag of 100 billion neurons. Each neuron has 10,000 connections. Scientists have determined that that neurobiological system in our body is the most complex structure, natural or created, in anything we have studied in our universe. And it's in you, it's in me. And what we're finding is that the information, now get this, this is so profound to me because it, it's like science is catching up with what the Word has been saying for thousands of years. What is processed in those neurons is highly connected to our emotions, thus almost always connected to relationship. So that, for example, we know that a child's brain, even starting in the womb and up until their third year of life is, until the hippocampus in the child's brain develops, is tuned in to the mother and in different ways to the father because their brain isn't developed enough to do the work it needs to do. So they're taking feedback, these children are, we did when we were little, from the mom so that the, neuro, the neurons inside of them are connecting with what's going on in the relational world around them and either growing from the attachment, the loving, empathic attachment that is there, or they are stifled in their growth. And if it happens too many times, that baby, that child is traumatized. And though they learn coping mechanisms the, the studies are showing that that child that is traumatized through what? Through lack of relational connection that fires the neurons, that produces the chemicals, that develop the brain, and especially the parts of the brain that know how to handle stress, that know how to deal with upset, that know how to manage emotions. When that part of the brain doesn't get developed, they know that the chances of that person acting out some mess down the road if they have not been healed. The chances of that damaged child with that damaged brain who's learned to cope, but someday acting out some mess is astronomical. In other words, let me tell you what Alan Shore says. Some of you just give me five seconds and you can tune back in because you won't like this, but some of you are going to go, I want to copy of this. Alan Shore says, the central thesis of my work is that the early social environment mediated by the primary caregiver, that would be mom, dad, auntie, whoever that primary person is, directly influences the final wiring of the circuits in the infant brain that are responsible for the future social and emotional coping capacities of the individual. If they don't get that connection somewhere along the way, they're going to act out of that disconnection. And trauma, further trauma, will be the result. Do you, see, do you, do you begin to see why John might say, look, the main thing that I want, the, the, this is the main thing that I want. Look, for all, look, what I want what will make my joy complete is that you are connected in an intimate fellowship. We're not talking surface. We're not talking coffee and donuts. We're, the word fellowship, the word koinonia, has to do with sharing everything that is important to share in life. Uh, an attachment like no other. Not codependently. We're still separate persons. But we choose to share the life of God in us with others. He's saying, I'm inviting you into 
that fellowship. And when you get a piece of that fellowship, I got to tell you, my joy will be full. What I don't think he said, because I don't know if he knew to say it was, and by the way, all the wounds in your life will begin in that fellowship to be healed. Did you hear what I said? Because I know it's late, I know it's hot, but I just said something quite profound. In that fellowship, he didn't say, my main goal for you is that you get some good sermons in you, although we need word. But what if we're so damaged sometimes inside that word bounces off the damaged places? What if it's the fellowship that heals the brain and the spirit and the soul to the point that the word has a place to land and work out its further healing? Are you catching this? So does that change your view of when you go, I wonder if I'm going to go to church. This isn't about going to church. This is about, in Jesus' name, listen, healing the human race through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on in this house. The healing of the human race through the power of of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, if you will just get the fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son, our joy will be complete. My God, if this is true, I mean, to me, it's an incredible converging line that I happen to hear about some of this scientific stuff this week. And here's John saying, I just want you to get together. Why didn't he say, I want you to stop smoking? Which would be fine, too. Why didn't he say, I just want you to memorize the books of the Bible? Why didn't he say, I want you to read through the Psalms 27 times? Why didn't he say, I just want you to go out and start on your own, uh, washing feet or telling people about the gospel? Why did he say, what I'm trying to give you is intimacy? A deep sharing of your soul, your wounds, your joys, your sorrows, your goods, your emotions, your pain, your love. And by the way, you know what's going to fuel all this? The Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's going to be messy, and it's going to be chaotic. But if you keep your eyes on him, he's going to give you something that is so deep it first will heal you and then you can take it out and heal the world. You either either need to get this or you need to fire me on the spot because this is where I feel like God's been taking us and this week, I feel like back in the day when I had one of those, you know, those matchbox cars and they had one of those things, you know, where the what do they call it? It was one of those places where they, the, the things screw, uh, stirred around like that. You put a matchbox car here, and it went, whoa! I feel like this week, I've been in my little car, just driving up. Destiny, courage, right? Just, I've been driving up. This week, I'm like, whoa! If this, is this the truth, or is it not the truth? If this isn't the truth, then honestly, right now, I'm saying somebody, step up and stop me now. Stop us all. If this is not the truth, but if this is the truth, it is time to throw down. We invite you into the fellowship that we have with the Father and with His Son. And if you get that fellowship, that wasn't a very good image, was it? If you get that fellowship, that's not good. That's not good. Forget that image. If you get that fellowship, our joy will be complete. Dang, man. Word of God. That's what he said. I want to tell you two stories, and I'm I'm, I'm very done. And And for those of you, look, for those of you... 
For those of you who don't know me, I always feel like I have to give this caveat. Maybe I don't need to anymore. Most of you know me, but, but, but I ain't mad. I'm just like so excited. I cannot stand it. Because do you connect with the wounds? Do you see the wounds? Are the wounds bleeding all over your dysfunctional family or are they not? Have you not been seeing for years? Well, geez, I wonder if I can just, I got this book. This will, no, the book will not heal them. But I can tell you what will if they get some folk around them that say, I don't know you, I'm not trying to get in your space, but I can tell you that I'm with you and I will not leave you until God pulls you out of this hole. I will never, can I tell you, that's where their healing begins. If you don't have a place to take them like that, then you have no hope to see healing in your world. That's why we go to every dang seminar that's out there. This seminar will give us the answer. And we come away with how many materials? Get the car, Fred. Got to get the notebooks. Got to get the videos we bought. When really, it's, it's just, it's this. It's this. It's working it through. It's putting our stuff on the table, letting the Holy Spirit heal our stuff. may take years, but this is where the healing comes. And it doesn't come by us holding on. It comes by us finally saying, I'm tired of holding on. I'm ready to disclose. Is there anybody here that wants to be with me? So, so one of the sisters last week tells this story. She, she had lost her cell phone. She's going to give a lecture, lost her cell phone, came back to her house to get the cell phone, never found it, started driving back, came upon a wreck. And the guy was pinned under his vehicle. She's a nurse, and so she came out. She got down with him. It was about 20 degrees outside. And for the next two hours, she simply said to him, I'm with you. I won't leave you until someone comes to get you out of this mess. I will not leave you. And she talked him through. She rubbed his arm and she talked to him some more. And she talked to him some more. She prayed. She goes, I don't know if you're a praying person, but I, I believe there's a God who wants to be with us here. And so she prayed that the Lord Jesus would be with him. And then finally, after two hours, the jaws of life came. They couldn't quite lift the car off in a certain way because it would have decapitated him, the, the sisters said. So they had to do it in a certain special way. They finally got the car off. And, and she was ushered off to her car, and the cops said, you need to go. And so she didn't know what happened to that guy. She called the hospital one night, that night, and they said, we don't have any record of that person. She thought, oh, no, he's died. To make a long story short, some years later, she gets a call from her secretary who said, there's somebody on the phone who wants to come over and see you. And he says he knows you and he needs to tell you something. And so she said, fine. And so he came, he came to the office. She looked at him and she knew immediately it was the person that had been underneath that car. And the person said, I got to tell you, it was the sound of your voice that saved my life. You telling me that I would not be left alone until somebody came to deliver me from this mess, saved my life. What a picture of the body of Christ. That's all it is. That, that's all it is? That's all that it is. Now this one last personal thing. I've told you for years about how I trusted Christ when I was five years old. Sitting at the back of a church this little church in northern Indiana, Liberty Bible Church, I think was the name of that church. And I've always told the story the way I understood it. The story I understood was I was a little five-year-old sinner because everybody's sin, we're born in sin. I mean, you know, you don't have to teach your two-year-old how to sin. It's in them. They'll figure out on their own how to sin. It's called the doctrine of original sin. I needed to be saved from sin, and it was remarkable to me that that day I heard what the pastor was saying. You've heard me say I, th I should have been crawling under the pews like all the other five-year-olds, but instead I was listening, and that day I heard the gospel that Jesus died for me, and I was forgiven from my sin, and I was saved. Five years old, that, that, and that's true, that's true, but that's one slant of the story. Let me tell you what happened to me this week. I'm sitting here this week, and I'm hearing these uh, PhDs and other folks talk about post-traumatic stress and other kinds of things. 
And, you know, even if you're a healer, you also continue to need healing. And so a couple times during the week, I'm literally hanging on to the chair in front of me going, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be learning how to help others, not how to help myself. And so there were a few really growth-filled moments, if, if you want to call them that, tender moments. I began to, to deal with my anxiety, draw a picture of my life on one of the pages of the notebook, and it, it's, it's full now. It's like, it's not a linear thing, it's a picture, it's a diagram. And in the first five years of my life, you know what the word was that I wrote next to those first five years? I wrote the word alone. Now, I'm not saying this to get you guys tuned into me. You can think about what this means for you and your own children and your own journey, but that's what I wrote, alone. The memories I have, I had nobody. There were a bunch of big people around me, but they were not there for me. I was alone. You know what I understand now? On a snowy December night in 1959, an alone little boy sat with a bunch of big people around him. He was still alone with no hope of never being alone because when you're five, you think this is just what it is. And that night, I didn't just hear some propositional truth about how my sins could be forgiven. Jesus came to me that night and said, I died for you, son. I was resurrected for you. And tonight, in time and space and history, I've come for you. You are not alone. You will never, ever be alone again because I'm with you, son. And my healing journey, slow as it has been, began because this unattached little boy that night climbed into the arms of the father through the son and began to experience the fellowship of the life of God. Or I would not be standing here with you today. You would be visiting me if I was still alive in prison or worse.